Well, good morning. The, uh, the kids are excused to their classrooms. <clears throat> well, it is a, uh, a pleasure to bring the message this morning. Um, as I've had the opportunity to preach over this last year, we have been uh, going through the book of 1 John. Um, and uh, to, this morning, we're going to be in, uh, this, this is my sixth message, and, this, and we're going to be in uh, 1 John chapter 2, starting in verse 28. And we're going to be going through chapter 3, verse 10. So as you, as you turn there, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father God, we uh, thank you for your goodness to us, your kindness, your grace. We thank you, Lord, that, uh, that you are um, so amazing and, and wonderful, and your, your love is deep, Lord. Lord, I pray that as we get into this letter of 1 John, Lord, as we uh, challenge um, our hearts and as we... Uh, learn uh, your word. I pray, God, that you help us to uh, be transformed, Lord, that you help us to, uh, to understand what we're studying and to then, um, and then to be, well, encouraged, but also to grow in our love for you and, uh, and our obedience and uh, to, to uh, press on. Lord. I thank you, God, again, for your grace and your mercy. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, it's uh, not a secret that children often look like and sometimes act like their parents. It's, uh, it's true. It's genetics, right? Each parent uh, gives half of their genetic material to their children, and the, the children are a combination of both parents. We all recognize this. Uh, when you meet someone um, and you meet their child for the first time, you look at them, you look at their child, and you say, wow, they look just like you. <clears throat> So let's do a little experiment. I'm going to put a few pictures up here on the screen. Um, One of these four men is my father. And I'm wondering if you can figure out which one it is. So I'll I'll zoom in here and we'll uh, we'll, we'll take a little vote here. Uh, Just a show of hands, uh, who thinks number one? No one, okay. Uh, Number two? (laughs) All right, all right. Number three. Quite a bit of hands, all right. Number four. A lot of hands there too. Okay. Well, uh, here's the answer. Um, It is uh, number three. That's my father. Actually, on the uh, the left is my uncle, and on the right is my my father-in-law. Most of you, a lot of you, guessed right. Why? Well, because you look at me, uh, you, and you, you look at the men on the screen, and you notice that we share some of the same features. We share a likeness. Uh, we have the same eyes, the same nose, and uh, the same eyebrows. <clears throat> in, uh, in our passage this morning, we're going to talk about the, the attributes and characteristics uh, that help us know if we are a child of God or a child of the devil. In short... The answer is, children of God have a likeness to God that reveals who they truly are. And uh, this is also true of children of the devil. And John wants us to see this point. Uh, But before we get into that, let me just remind you of the context of 1 John. As we've made our way through the letter, we've seen that John wants to help the churches in Asia Minor know and understand who they are in Christ. Uh, The church has gone through a difficult time with false teachers coming and teaching lies about Jesus and lies about how to attain salvation. 
Uh, The teachings uh, robbed the people of their joy and made true believers feel uncertain about their salvation. They were left confused and disoriented. Uh, And these false teachers taught that uh, Christ didn't truly come in the flesh and that the only way to be saved is to become one of the the enlightened few, to to jump through their hoops. So John writes to help these churches. He writes uh, so that they can have joy and confidence in their salvation uh, and so he uses three tests, and we've we've talked about this um, as I've as I've uh, as we've gone through this. Um, <clears throat> and they, these three tests show who is a true believer and who is a deceiver. And so far, we've seen that John has used all three of these tests, but uh, but he keeps circling. He'll keep circling back around to them. Uh, first, we saw the moral test, how you live your life. Uh, second, we saw the love test, how you love and care for others. And then last time I preached, we saw the theological test. What are you affirming to be true? What are you teaching? And this morning, John will uh, come back to the moral test. How we live our life shows us who we are. So let's read the text this morning. Again, 1 John chapter 2, starting in verse 28. And it says this, And now, little children, abide in him. So that when he appears, we may have confidence and not shrink from him in shame at his coming. If you know that he is righteous, you may be sure that everyone who practices righteousness has been born of him. See what kind of love the father has given to us, that we should be called children of God. And so we are. The reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know him. Beloved, we are God's children now. And what we will be uh, has not yet appeared. But we will know that when he appears, we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. And everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. Everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. You know that he appeared in order to take away sins, and in him there is no sin. No one who abides in him keeps on sinning. Uh, No one who keeps on sinning has either seen him or known him. Little children, let no one deceive you. Whoever practices righteousness is righteous as he is righteous. Whoever practices or whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil, for the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. No one born of God makes a practice of sinning, for God's seed abides in him, and he cannot keep on sinning, because he has been born of God. By this it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God nor is the one who does not love his brother. Well, this morning, John gives us three distinctive qualities of of God's children so that we may not be deceived. Three distinctive qualities of God's children so that we may not be deceived. And the first is that God's children have a kind of confidence, the confidence of God's children. Uh, Look again at verse 28. It says, And now, little children, abide in him, so that when he appears, we may have confidence and not shrink from him in shame at his coming. If you know that he is righteous, you may be sure that everyone who practices righteousness has been born of him. When I was a kid, there was always an expectation that dad was uh, coming home at the end of the day. Sometimes this was something I was looking forward to. Uh, I would uh, look forward to eating dinner as a family, or sometimes we had plans to work on my motorcycle or watch a movie or go out. Uh, So I anticipated his arrival, and I watched for him um, to pull in the driveway, and I was really glad when he got home. 
But there were other times when I dreaded his return. Uh, these were the days where I got in trouble at school or uh, at, uh, at home or said something I, I shouldn't have to my mother. Um, and I knew that, uh, that he would come through that door and I would have to face my shame. I would have to face the consequences of my actions. And most dads, I think, can relate to that. This feeling about our arrival is not always fair. Uh, we, would all, we would expect to always be welcomed home. The, the, the family would be super excited to see us. Uh, but there are times when sin gets in the way of that, doesn't it? And it's uh, the perfect illustration of what we're talking about today. We too are waiting for uh, Christ's return. He has uh, promised that he will return, uh, and we anxiously wait for him to be revealed. But not all are going to be happy when he returns. There are two responses that will happen at the return of Christ. The first is, of course, excitement, joy, uh, like an eager child who uh, uh, waiting for the return of his dad, who runs up to his father and, and, and hugs him. Christ's return will be welcomed and celebrated. But there's a second response that some will have. Rather than joy when he returns, they will be fill, fear, filled with fear and shame. Uh, John says they will experience a, a kind of shame. This is like a child hiding in the corner. Or you could think of Adam and Eve uh, in the garden. Uh, they heard the sound of God walking in the garden and they hid themselves. But what's the key difference between those who experience confidence when Christ returns and those that experience shame? Well, the answer is that John commands us to abide in Christ. Uh, we, we have to abide in him. The key difference is that those who have confidence are those who abide. So, and to abide is this, this word. It's really important in John's letters. Um, the Greek word is meno, uh, meaning to stay or remain. And it, it, it's, it's pretty significant. Uh, listen to how many times Jesus says abide in John 15. He says in John 15, 4 through 6, it says, Abide in me, and I in you. As, a, as the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers, and the branches are gathered, thrown into the fire, and burned. Jesus teaches them that uh, to, to stay faithful to him, to persevere, to remain, to continue. Uh, if they do, they will produce godly fruit, uh, and, and it'll, it, this fruit will be just evident in their lives, and it will lead to revo- reward. But if they don't abide, if they don't persevere or remain in Christ, they will face judgment. They will be cast aside and burned. Does this mean that someone can lose their salvation? No, in fact, Jesus encourages them in in verse 16. He says, you did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should abide so that whatever you ask in the the Father in my name, he may give it to you. Jesus is saying that those who are his will remain faithful. They will abide in the truth and this abiding faith will produce fruit. Fruit. On the other hand, there are those who claim to follow Christ. Uh, They may do all the right Christian things, but ultimately they fall away because they never truly belonged to Christ. They stopped abiding. They stopped remaining. And if you look in in, uh, chapter 2 of of the letter here before us in 1 John, uh, in verse 19, John says this. It says, They went out from us, 
but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. That's the same word, minnow. But they went out that it might become plain that they are all not of us. You see, true Christian faith is abiding faith. It's persevering faith. It's a, it's a faith that presses on. But remember, John is not seeking to discourage the reader. He's not saying, uh, you are just terrible and uh, you need to try harder. He's not saying, you need to start abiding. No, his encouragement is to continue abiding in him, to press on, to press forward. One commentator uh, writes, uh, these various commands which urge continued steadfastness are not intended to frighten the readers or to suggest their inadequacies or failures to abide in Christ. Quite the contrary, these words encourage them to continue faithfully in the direction that they have been heading all along. The command admonishes them, but it does so by affirming them in their present course. They have abided, they must continue to do so. Encouragement and exhortation are joined together. So if you're here today and you love Jesus and you're following Jesus, great. Keep, keep loving him. Keep following him. Press on in faithfulness and you will have confidence when he returns. You won't shrink back in fear or shame. You'll celebrate with joy because the one you love has returned for you. And, and your sin has been dealt with. It was covered on the cross of Calvary. But the question might be asked, how do you know if you're abiding? You can know that you are in this camp because of verse 29. It says, if you know that he is righteous, you may be sure that everyone who practices righteousness has been born of him. You practice righteousness. What does this mean? What does it mean to practice righteousness? Now, the word practice could bring to mind disciplined, you know, repeated actions to improve a skill. You know, people practice all sorts of things. Um, when I was in fifth grade, I, I, I loved basketball, uh, but I, I stunk at basketball. Uh, and so my grandparents got me a basketball hoop, and, and uh, they did it so I could practice. And that's what I did. I practiced, and I practiced, and I practiced, and I practiced. Uh, when it was raining, I practiced. When it was snowing, I cleared the snow and I practiced. When I broke my wrist, I practiced with my left hand. Like I just practiced all the time. But this has nothing to do with what we're talking about here. We're not talking about doing righteousness drills uh, or improving your righteousness through various works. No, we're talking about fruit. We're, we're talking about progeny. If you if you're born of God, that is born again, you are going to have the righteousness of your father. And this will result in living righteously. We can get thrown off by the word practice in our ESV translation, but the word for practice is actually a simple word meaning just to do. Um, you could translate it as, as those who do righteousness. Or because it's a present active participle, you could say the one doing righteousness. In other words, those who are born of God are actively living righteously because he is righteous. This is not to minimize our own effort. Abiding in Christ is an active word. It's something that requires effort. Uh, but the difference between a believer and a false convert is that the true believer will joyfully abide in Christ and desire to live righteously. The false convert only pretends to live righteously, but they're but their heart isn't in it. They keep up appearances and, and do their best to blend in, but their righteousness is done for the benefit of others. 
It's done to make them feel better about themselves or to mask the fact that their lives are falling apart behind the scene. They are still enslaved to sin, but their sin is more refined. And they know how to play the game. They know how to look religious, uh, but they aren't actually abiding in Christ. They just look like it. You might know this, uh, you might know that this is you if you secretly dread Christ's return. You're not eager for it. You're ashamed. But those who belong to Christ live righteously because they have hope in Christ's return. This brings us to the next point. Children of God have hope. The hope of the children of God. Look at verse 3, or sorry, chapter 3, verse 1. See what kind of love the Father has given to us, that we should be called son or children of God. And so we are. The reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know him. Beloved, we are God's children now. And what we will be has not yet appeared, but we know that when he appears, we shall be like him, because we shall see him as he is. And everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. So John, John has encouraged us to abide in Christ, and he has said that we should do this so that we can have confidence when Christ appears. And he told us that it's our, it's our daily practice of righteousness, the, the fruit of abiding, uh, that, that will help us know that we're in that camp. But, you know, he did say something strange that he hasn't said yet up to this, uh, up to this point in this letter. And I want to kind of go back and address this. And in, in, in verse 29... He says that though he, he said that those who practice righteousness are born of him. Born of him. Let's talk about what that means. The Apostle John is teaching what he heard from Jesus in John chapter 3. Jesus teaches Nicodemus about this. Nicodemus was a Pharisee, a, a leader of the Jews, who came to Jesus at night and he asks Jesus, he says, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these things that you do unless God is with him. And the question Nicodemus is asking is inferred. Um, He's saying, you know, you're saying these things that that we don't understand and and things that we really don't like, and we're the authority on these things, but you're doing these miracles and you're doing these signs that that we can't deny are from God. So what do I do with that? How, How can I understand it's Nicodemus' question. And Jesus responds to him and says, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. In other words, you're not going to understand this, Nicodemus. You're not going to get it. You're not going to understand the kingdom of God unless you are born again. And Nicodemus, like us, if we were hearing this for the first time, doesn't get it. He says, How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus answers, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. So now John is writing to these born again believers, those who have experienced this new birth as described by Jesus, And he's helping them see the evidence of this truth. Those who practice righteousness are born of him. Again, those who practice righteousness are born of him. That is, they're born again. Theologically, there's several elements of salvation that we can praise God for. I want to go through these uh, just, just for a moment. 
Uh, first, there is the preaching of the gospel that goes forth. This is what uh, theologians call the external call. That is, uh, it's the call that goes out and ev- to, to everyone everywhere to repent and believe the good news of Jesus, that he defeated death and sin and with his work on the cross, and that you can be saved if you repent and put your faith in Jesus Christ. This is the, the first element of the gospel, or the, the element of salvation, the preaching of the gospel. The call goes out to everyone, but only some accept it. And that's because of the second point, which we call the internal call. This is where God softens the heart of the sinner. They hear the truth as if for the first time and they're cut to the heart and they see the preciousness of Christ and they're, they're born again. They're transformed through the Holy Spirit. This is when the Holy Spirit indwells the believer. This is also called in regeneration. Uh, it's where the heart of stone that was hardened by sin is softened and they're given a new nature that now desires to follow Christ. They're trans- transferred from death to life, from darkness to light. And this leads to the third element that we call conversion. That is, since God regenerates the heart, the person responds in repentance and faith. Uh, They willingly turn from their sins and they decide to follow Jesus, to to serve him and obey him. It's conversion. And this leads to the fourth part, which which is their unity with Christ. They're now united with Christ in his death, burial, and resurrection. Our lives are, as Paul says, hidden with Christ in God. And this is not mere identification with Christ, but true unity with him. It's a spiritual union. And it's because we are united with Christ that we're justified. That is declared righteous. The righteousness of Christ is imputed to the believer. Their their sins no longer abide on them. Your, Your sins were crucified with Christ. And now Christ's righteousness is put on your account. This is the the declaration of God. You are now righteous. Ryan is now righteous. He's forgiven. And most of the time, you know, we stop there. I heard the gospel. God transformed my heart. I responded to the gospel. And now I'm united with Christ. And finally, I'm declared righteous. This is great news. This is truly amazing grace. But, but hear this. It doesn't stop there. John wants us to see something even more miraculous, even more glorious than that. Look at verse 1. See what kind of love the Father has given to us that we should be called children of God. And so we are. Wow. This is the crowning height of grace. Behold the love of the Father that we should be called children of God. But not just called children like it's a, a meaningless title that we inherited. Uh, And not just that God pretends or decides to view us as his kids. No. John says, and so we are. Why? Oh, because God said so. Uh, Just as a judge legally declares a child to be adopted, you know, there's a process to that. The judge of the universe declares that we are now his children. The proclamation of God declares us as children. Now, you may not understand what's being said here, so I want to I preach on this for a minute, um, really dive into this. We, run, we, we live in a world where liberals run around saying, you know, we're all children of God. No, we aren't. Not at all. We're not all children of God. We are his creation. 
And the only way that you can be a child of God is if you've been legally declared to be his child through adoption. Let me expand on this a little bit. Adam and Eve, were they God's children? Well, in a, in a generic way, you could say that God took care of them. He guided them and walked with them like a, like a father. But, they, <clears throat> but were they actually his children or were they his creation? They were his creation. Now, they were perfect. They bore the image of God and, and God loved them, because they, but, but, but they were just his creation. Much like if I were to make a sandwich, you know, I get some nice fluffy bread, I, I, I bring it out and, and uh, maybe it's lightly toasted and I put some mayonnaise on it, some mustard, you know, some, some, uh, some turkey, some uh, lettuce, tomato, maybe a little onions, you know, and I make this sandwich, I mean, and it is looking good, like it's, it's tasty, right? Are you hungry yet? Um, it looks amazing, it just looks perfect. Well, I couldn't take that sandwich, lift it up, and say, Behold, my son. It doesn't work like that. It doesn't work like that. It wasn't born from me. It's just something I made with my hands. Much like Adam and Eve, God made them perfect, but they were still, his just, still just his creation, not, his, not actually his children. But Adam and Eve didn't stay perfect. Uh, they sinned. So now they're still God's creation, but through sin, they're now his fallen creation. They're cursed with sin. And man was made to be in a relationship with God, but now sin has destroyed that relationship. A created man can now cannot fulfill his purpose. Um, so if you think about my sandwich, say I put it, 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 that sandwich in the fridge and I forget about it. A few weeks later, I open up the fridge and find that that sandwich is not so tasty looking anymore. Not at all. Now it's moldy and gross. It's got, you know, green fuzz around it. The stench is unbearable. It's become a disgusting abomination of nature, right? It's lost its purpose and it's become vile to its creator. What am I going to do with it? I mean, I'm not going to eat it. So there's only one thing I can do, throw it away. I need to destroy that abomination. You and I are are like that sandwich. God created man for a purpose. He lavished his goodness on us and we rebelled against him. Now sin taints everything we do. And the stench of our sin is an offense to a holy God. Our hearts are exceedingly wicked. And so what do we deserve? To be tossed out. We deserve the judgment of God. But God didn't leave it there. You see, he sent his son, his one and only son, to the earth. Jesus took on human flesh. He became a man. He lived the perfect sinless life that you and I couldn't live. He suffered the judgment of God and he died on the cross. His righteous life was sacrificed on our behalf so that we could have his righteousness put on our account. Those who repent and put their faith in Jesus are forgiven Our sins are cast as far as the east is from the west. We're clothed in the righteousness of Christ, and sin no longer has dominion over us. This is wonderful grace. This is taking what was lost by Adam and Eve and restoring it. And that's amazing. But God saw fit to go even further. God's grace surpasses the natural to the supernatural, and he adopts us as sons and daughters. 
We're now children of God. The king has made the proclamation that these poor beggars not only be lifted out of our slums, but to be established as royalty. And John says that this is the reason the world doesn't know us. He says the reason why the world doesn't know us is that it did not know him. We've been transferred from the domain of darkness into marvelous light, yet also brought into the family of God. And the world doesn't get this. The world thinks we're crazy. The world doesn't understand us because it doesn't understand him. Peter says that we are strangers and aliens in this world. So you may have family, you may have friends, you may have co-workers, children, parents, or a spouse that treats you like you're deceived. Uh, they, they think that you're foolish or, or crazy. They think that you're no different than them. They think that you're maybe misguided or primitive in your thinking or weak or using God, for using God as a crutch. I'm sure you've heard those things. They don't understand you because they don't know him. You're the orphan child in the orphanage who's, been, who's, who's actually seen the signed adoption papers. The king has adopted you, and now you're royalty. But the other kids don't believe you, and they make fun of you. They don't know that you are a child of the king, but our king will return. The king is coming to get you. Look at verse 2. Beloved, we are God's children now. And what we will be has not yet appeared, but we know that when he appears, we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. John says again that Jesus is coming back. He's returning. And when he appears, we will be like him. I love this verse because John is like, you know, I don't know what it's going to look like. I don't completely understand how this works, but I do know that we're going to be like him. Whatever that means. You are right now, if you are a follower of Christ, a child of God. Even though you still sin, even though you still struggle and suffer in the world, you are a child of God now, today. That's mind-blowing. Think about, and it's even more mind-blowing when you think about what that will mean when he returns. You can't even comprehend it. One commentator writes, we are now children of the Father, even with all our faults and flaws and yes, sins. But it is not God's purpose to allow his children to be as we are now. For the full benefit of our status cannot be even imagined in this world. It has to be revealed. And that, revel that revelation lies still in the future. The full effect of being a child of the Father with eternal life is not something anyone can comprehend now. I don't know what that will look like. But it's going to be awesome. John is telling us we are God's children now and that, we, uh, that what we will be has not been revealed, but we know he's coming back. And when we see him, it will be a transformative sight. In a moment, we will be changed. And this is our great hope. We are now children of God and we look forward to the time when Christ returns. And it's this hope that keeps us going and, and produces our de a desire in us to purify ourselves to continue abiding in him and living righteously. Look at verse 3. And everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. 
Yet again, the basis um, and motivation of our godliness is not to earn favor, but to be like him. We know he's going to return, and when he returns, you know, we want to have lived faithfully rather than having lived making excuses for our sin. You see, it's on the basis that we are children of God, uh, uh, and he will return for us, that we have an amazing hope. Now, this is not like the way we use hope in the English language. Uh, You know, we use hope to mean, you know, a wish uh, or a desire, uh, no matter how likely something is to happen. Um, It often conveys a sense of uncertainty. You could say, I hope the trailblazers make it to the playoffs, uh, but I think you'll be disappointed. Um, No, for the Christian, our hope is not wishful thinking. When John speaks of, uh, of the Christian's future, there's no uncertainty because it's based on what Jesus Christ has already done. The, the only reason that this attitude is referred to as a hope is that it is still in the future. It, it's a certain hope that is merely awaited. And with that certain hope, with that eager expectation, true believers prepare for Christ's return. They They desire to live godly lives, knowing that life is short and we want to spend it for his glory. Those who've been born again have the spirit of God in them and their desire is to purify themselves just as he is pure. And Jesus made this possible for us. Look, you know, Jesus appeared the first time to take away sin. Look at verse five there. It says, you know that he appeared in order to take away sins and in him there is no sin. As a Christian, I want to be like Jesus. I don't want to struggle with sin any longer. I want to live for him. And that brings us to the next point. The children of God are characterized by purity. Purity of God's children. Look at verses 4 through 10. Everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. You know that he appeared in order to take away sins, and in him there is no sin. No one who abides in him keeps on sinning. No one who keeps on sinning has either seen him or known him. Little children, let no one deceive you. Whoever practices righteousness is righteous, as he is righteous. Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil, for the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. No one born of God makes a practice of sinning, for God's seed abides in him, and he cannot keep on sinning, because he has been born of God. By this, it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. Well, in in verse 4 here, our ESV, uh, again, translates the the present active participle of poieo as uh, uh, makes a practice of. But really, the word is just do. The one who does sin or the, the one who is doing sin. The Legacy Standard Bible has a, has a different translation. It says, Whoever, uh, or everyone who does sin also does lawlessness, and sin is lawlessness. But I understand why the ESV translators would do what they did here. They're trying to capture the present, ongoing aspect of the word. Because if we aren't careful, in English, this, could, this verse could sound like Christians must be perfect, or, or maybe that Christians never sin. Like you could read this as a Christian and say, well, I still struggle with sin. So does that mean I've lost my salvation? Does it mean that I'm only secure when I'm doing righteous things? Like, like sometimes I'm saved and sometimes I'm not? 
There's some people who teach that, but that's not what's going on here. No, John told us otherwise. In chapter 1, we covered this, but in chapter 1, he says, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. So in our, in our text this morning, John uses the, the present text tense in a way that, that would be clear to the original readers. And the, the ESV is trying to capture that, this ongoing present idea of sinning. Look at verse 6. No one who abides in him keeps on sinning. No one who keeps on sinning has either seen him or known him. Again, this could be translated, everyone who is abiding in him is not sinning. Um, All those who are sinning have not seen him nor known him. And the idea is that those who do not know Jesus are exposed by how they are conducting their lives. Their, their ongoing practice, their, their, their way is the way of sin. Their uh, path is the path of sin. They live lives of rebellion, lives of lawlessness. As that is, they, they live as though God didn't give them a law to live by. They violate God's law as revealed in Scripture, but also the law that God has written on their hearts. They're always trying to find ways to violate their conscience and not feel bad about it. They live lives not being justified by God, but justifying themselves, making excuses. And this is why we do church discipline, according to Matthew 18. If there are professing believers in the church who are living in unrepentant sin, Jesus has told us that we can't let it go. We have to confront them and urge them to repent. And if they refuse, we bring two or three others with us who can also bear witness and urge them to repent. And if they still don't listen to them, we tell it to the whole church so that the whole body can urge them and warn them to repent. But Jesus says that if they refuse to listen even to the church, we are to let them be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. We declare that they are unbelievers based on their walking in unrepentant sin. True believers, when confronted with their sin, are grieved by their sin. They stop walking in sin. Now, it's not always a quick thing. It's not always cut and dry, you know. Uh, There's sometimes a process involved. There's lots of learning involved. And there's uh, habits that have to be changed and things like that. But the the idea is, is that true believers are grieved over their sin. You can see this in verse 7. Little children, let no one deceive you. Whoever practices righteousness is righteous as he is righteous. Purity marks those who know Jesus. John wants to to be clear on this point. John doesn't want you to be confused with compassion and love. He says, little children, little children, hear this. Let no one deceive you on this point. There are some who want to say, well, it doesn't really matter how you live. It's all about grace, right? You don't have to worry about sinning. Paul nips this idea in the bud. And in uh, Romans 6, Paul says, what shall we say then? Are we to continue to sin that grace may abound? By no means. No way. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Again, verse 5 in our text here says, you know that he, is, he has appeared in order to take away sins. And in him there is no sin. No one who abides in him keeps on sinning. 
So what about those who do keep on sinning? Look at verse 8. Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil, for the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. Well, John's certainly not pulling any punches here. There's no, um, uh, he's saying there's no such thing as a perpetually carnal Christian. There are Christians abiding in Christ who are producing fruit, and there are unbelievers who are of the devil. There's no in-between. There's no middle ground that John presents here. Those who continue in sin are of the devil. They play ball on Satan's court. They are playing his game. That's what he does. He's been doing it from the beginning, and he will continue to do it until he is finally dealt with. And that's why Jesus became a man and defeated sin. All of Satan's schemes, all of his plans, influence, and power were broken, were broken down when Jesus arrived. When he lived the perfect sinless life, he resisted Satan's temptations. And then as a righteous man, he was nailed to a cross, and he cried out on that cross, it is finished. And he died and was buried, but he didn't stay dead. God raised him again on the third day, showing that he defeated sin and death. All of Satan's work reduced to dust. Why then would a believer keep on sinning? Why? The answer, he can't. Look at verse 9. No one born of God makes a practice of sinning, for God's seed abides in him, and he cannot keep on sinning because he has been born of God. According to John here, Christians cannot live in a perpetual state of sin. This is because they have a new nature that won't allow this. What does that mean? Is there, is there some sort of physical restraint that they can't sin? No, that's not, that's not what he's saying. John is saying that the very work of God that worked in you when you responded to the gospel in the beginning is the same work that secures your sanctification. In other words, the, the work in our hearts that God did that caused us to respond in repentance and faith still remains and will continue to remain. We will continue to respond in repentance and faith. It's the mark of the believer. It's the way of the believer. Repentance and faith. Because we have a new nature. Now, it it isn't a sinless nature yet, right? We're still subject to temptations and sometimes our our will is weak. Sometimes we develop habits of sin. Uh, But the Holy Spirit within us empowers us to overcome sin and he will. And we will overcome sin. Paul had this confidence when he wrote to the Philippians. In Philippians 1.6 he says, And I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. You see, there's a pro- progressive work going on here. It's a work of God going on in the heart of the believer. As the believer abides in Christ, his appetite for sin diminishes and his desire to honor God increases. This is done through the indwelling of the Holy Spirit within us in conjunction with the the spiritual disciplines of hearing and reading the Word of God, worshiping Him as Lord, and spending time with the people of God. Now, it's not always a perfect progression, right? It's not just, you know. Um, There there are high points and low points. uh, But the overall trajectory is upward, right? You guys have all known there's times where you've struggled with sin and it's, and it's, and it's difficult and there's, there's low points. 
But the mark of a believer is that there's going to be a progression and it's going to be trending upward. This is what it means to be a child of God. And this is, this is how we know. Look at verse 10. By this it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. This is the, the ultimate t- test. This is how you can know if you are a child of God or a child of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. The mark of a true believer is one who practices righteousness. The mark of a false believer is one who does not practice righteousness. And this is often manifested in how we love one another. It's that simple. But it's important to remember that this is not a point of pride. If you're a follower of Christ, this isn't because you're intrinsically better than those who don't follow Christ. Uh, Your righteousness didn't come from you. It's completely by God's grace. You were one of the, the hardened hearts in the crowd chanting, crucify him, kill him, beat him. You, you hated him and wanted nothing to do with him. There was nothing good in you. There was nothing redeemable in you. Yet God chose to save you and adopt you into his family. He made his enemy into his son or his daughter. On uh, May 27, 2002, a man named Takoya Kreiner opened fire on three unarmed young men who were playing video games on the couch at a friend's house. Uh, It is not known exactly why he did this, but he left two young men dead and one seriously injured. Uh, Among the dead was 21-year-old Ike Brown Jr., who was a junior at Florida Memorial College in Miami, Florida. And Takoya Kreiner was sentenced to three life sentences for the murders. However, what is truly remarkable about this story is not the murder, but what happened several years later when Ike Brown Sr., the father of the slain young man, requested something remarkable from his son's murderer. He decided to write to Koya, and in his letter, he made a sincere request. He said, I miss my son, Ike Jr. Would you be willing to fill in for him? Mr. Brown was asking if he could adopt his son's murderer. Now, within a month, he received a letter back from Takoya. Not knowing what to expect, he opens up the letter and it says, Dear Mr. Brown, I now know that God is real. I told God that if I heard from you, I would give my life to him the rest of my days. You asked me for a favor to fill in for Ike Jr. I'm not qualified, but if you'll have me from this point on, you're my dad and I'm your son. This story is amazing and many ways, but what's really incredible about it is is that it illustrates very well several um, elements of the gospel, including the doctrine of adoption. In no way was Mr. Brown compelled or expected to reach out to his son's killer, but he chose to reach out to him. Not just as an act of kindness or to say, how are you, or or, I forgive you, or, or to get some sort of closure, but to make an incredible request that demonstrates great grace. He chose to adopt him. I've chosen to ask you to be my son. Today, Mr. Brown and Takoya Kreiner have an incredible relationship. Takoya now calls Mr. Brown his dad, and Mr. Brown loves Takoya as a son. Takoya would say, God has used us to show the divine attributes of love. You see, it was our sin that put Jesus on the cross. 
And it was our rebellion, it, well, it was in our rebellion that we were lawless sons of the devil, but God showed us kindness by taking our cold, dead, murderous hearts and making them alive. See what kind of love the Father has given to us that we should be called children of God. And so we are. We sang a song this morning called How Deep the Father's Love for Us. I want to draw your attention again to the first verse. If I could sing, I would sing it. Um, How deep the Father's love for us. How vast beyond all measure that he should give his only son to make a wretch his treasure. How great the pain of searing loss, the father turns his face away, as wounds which mar the chosen one bring many sons to glory. If you're here this morning you don't, and you don't know this love, if you don't know God as your father, then did you know that today you can become a child of God? You don't have to remain in your sin. You don't have to remain in darkness. You can become a child of God today. You've heard the gospel in various different ways this morning. Uh, You've heard that Jesus died so that you can be forgiven. I urge you to, to, to not go another minute without putting your trust and faith in him. Without committing your life to him. Turn from your sin. Put your faith in Jesus Christ. And you know, you might say to me, I, I can't. I, I struggle to believe. I, I love my sin. And you're right. You can't do it on your own. You need God's grace. So I ask you to cry out to the Lord today. Call out to Him. Ask that He save you. Ask that He turn your love for sin into a love for Him. Ask that He take your, your hardened heart and soften it. Take out that heart of stone, give you a heart of flesh. I pray that he does that for you. Let's pray. <clears throat> Father God, your love is deep, Lord. Your graciousness is beyond imagination, or our own, what we can imagine, Lord. Lord, I, I thank you for your grace. I thank you for your word and the clarity of your word. I know it's challenging to, to we, we are all in our battle, for, uh, battle with sin, Lord. We all struggle. <clears throat> but I thank you for your grace that propels us onward. If there's anyone here this morning that has not given their life to you, I pray, God, that you work in their heart, Lord. You help them to turn from their, their, their way of sin, their, their following the devil, Lord, and that you, you make their heart new. You bring them into the light, Lord. I pray that you do that here this morning. I thank you for, again, for your grace and your mercy. I praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, if you have questions or want to talk about what it means to follow Christ, um, please talk to us. Um, Jason Evans will be up front here. um, If you'd like to to talk to uh, an elder. Uh, For the rest of you, um, rest and rejoice in his marvelous grace. And God bless you as you go.